Tonight, we, we're going to finish up 2 John this evening. Uh, I will say this is probably going to be a little bit shorter. Some of you are saying I've heard that before, but we'll see. Uh, but uh, we, we're going to finish up. We have verses 7 through 13. And I didn't want to get started on 3 John tonight because I really want to try to get that all done in one shot because they all, the, it all really goes together uh, very well. So we're going to be in 2 John. We're going to begin in verse 7. But, you know, uh, we've talked about this before. The, the Apostle John was confronted with the spiritual, mystical theology of his day. Uh, which was an early form of Gnosticism. We've talked about that a lot. Gnosticism is just a term that is based on the Greek word for knowledge. And, and the idea was that these people believed they had some sort of special knowledge that gave, made them superior to other people, and that's what saved them. And it, this, I, this belief system took many different forms as it developed over the years, but most forms usually held the two main propositions in common. And that was, the number one was that salvation is by some mystical knowledge. And the second was that the material world is evil or at least inferior to the spiritual world. And as a result of that worldview, these people attacked the reality of the incarnation. That's what so much of what 1 John and 2 John has been about. And similar to that, there was a group called the Docetists, which was kind of an early form, uh, sort of a semi, it, it, was, it was in the Christian world, but it was a type of Gnosticism and that is, doesn't sound, that seems, that seems like a strange word to us, but that's because that comes from the Greek word meaning to appear. And the, the reason they're called that is because they said that Jesus only appeared to be human or and only appeared to have a physical body, but it wasn't really, uh, he wasn't, didn't really have a physical body because they said that because they said the material world is evil. So if Jesus had a body, that would be material. And so they said, well, that can't be. So he only looked like he was had a real body. And then there was another form of the heresy that was led by a man named Serenthus who said that, that the Christ spirit came on the man Jesus of the baptism, but then he left him when he was on the cross. So all these weird things but that, that, that talked about who Jesus was, but they didn't, they denied that Jesus came in the flesh. But John knew something. He knew that, that Christology, what you believe about Jesus is at the heart of Christianity. And if you're wrong on who Christ is, then you'll be wrong everywhere else. John therefore issued a very strong warning to be on the lookout for anyone who challenged the full deity the true and perfect humanity, the sinless life, and the completed work of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. So when we pick it up in verse 7, we need to understand, verse 7 is going to be dealing with some of these false teachers, but it's closely connected to verse 6. Now, we're going to, not going to read verse 6 tonight. We, we talked about that last week. But in verse 6, it talked about how we, we need to walk in the truth and, and love one another. And so... In verse 7, he says, I say this because, so he's talking about I, the reason I said you need to walk in the truth. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So while, while genuine believers will walk in the truth and live according to the obedience of love, he said many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, 
as I said, concern about deceivers is a major theme of 1 John, and it is the major issue that he addresses here in the second half of 2 John. And so these spiritual deceivers, here's a way you can think about them. They're, they're like Satan's missionaries on assignment. They're the ones out there trying to spread this false gospel. And their message is that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he's, that he's not the Son of God come in the flesh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Their message is a denial of the true gospel, attacking the, 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 the factuality of the incarnation and the, and the genuine uniting of, of deity in God and humanity in the person of, of Jesus. Now, the heart of all false teaching will be a defective view of Jesus. It will distort who he is and what he has done. Such teaching will, without exception, deny his full deity and will reject his perfect work of atonement through his crucifixion and resurrection. In fact, that is the rule. If you want to look at something and if, you want, if you're trying to determine, you know, people say, well, how do you determine if something's a cult or if it's what, if it's a heresy, what all these things, but... The, the, the key that you look at is, what do they say about Jesus? Who do they say Jesus is? And if they say that he is someone besides the Son of God, come to flesh on the earth, then there's, it's, it's false teaching. That's a cult. That is, that is a, 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 at a minimum a heresy, a terrible heresy, but it's a cult. It is completely wrong. Uh, take, for example, here's a great example. I don't know if anybody here of... Uh, heard of you probably haven't because it was not that that very well known. But uh, back in the '90s, they had something called the the Jesus Seminar. Anybody heard of the Jesus Seminar? Well, that, that back in 1998, they released a book called The Acts of Jesus, and in this book, they they arrogantly proclaimed that the resurrection of Jesus did not involve the resuscitation of a corpse. And they, they said that belief in Jesus' resurrection did not depend on what happened to his body. So if you believe in the resurrection, it doesn't matter if his body was really raised or not. They said that the body of Jesus decayed like all other corpses. And they said that the resurrection was not an event that actually happened on that first Easter Sunday. They actually said that, that it was not an event that could have been recorded by a video camera. That it was some spiritual thing that took place, but it was not a physical resurrection. And they, in addition, they assured people that it's, it's not necessary to believe in the historical truth of the resurrection story. And, and to, to opinions and to teachings like that, John fires back, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. He, he is very strong. And he uses, that's a strong word, the antichrist. And it would be difficult, if not impossible, to understand this verse's meaning without reference to, to the passages in 1 John, because you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about where he talked about this very thing uh, about the Antichrist. And, and if, if you don't read that part, it's going to be very difficult to understand this because it doesn't go into a lot of detail in this passage. Uh, but but in, the, in 1 John, the Antichrist, as you remember, was not, he was not referring to the Antichrist as a single individual but whoever denies that Jesus is, in the, is the Christ. That's 1 John 2, verse 22. And, then, and that he also says that such a person is powered by the spirit of the Antichrist, which does not acknowledge Jesus 
as 1 John 4, 3. So now we know that there is a person who's going to be known, we know him as the Antichrist or the lawless one or with many different, or in Revelation, the beast, these different, different ideas. We know that that's, that's a real person that's coming. But we need to understand in this context here, if you, just a little refresher, remember the word Antichrist means one of two things. It either means against Christ or it means in the place of Christ. And, and here in this context, uh, it's clearly meaning that he that that this is against Christ. That is that's what the idea behind here is. And and now the word antichrist itself only occurs in First John chapter two verses eighteen and twenty two, and then chapter four verse three, and then here in Second John seven. So. You know, when we hear the word Antichrist, we immediately think about end times and revelation and that sort of thing. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because that certainly is referred to there. But, uh, you know, while interest in that sinister figure's coming is as popular as ever, John informs us that, that his minions and are, are here and have been here since the first century. New, New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall puts this teaching in perspective when he says, I'm going to read it to you. He says, Apocalyptic thought prophesied the coming of a, of a supremely evil antagonist of God in the last days. The lawless one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Or the beast, Revelation chapter 13. Which, by the way, if you look, there's actually two beasts in the book of Revelation. One of them is the false prophet. And the other one is also is the Antichrist. Um, so to, to refer to him as the beast is not really specific enough when you're talking about the, the Antichrist. But he, he goes on, this figure is certainly opposed to Christ and attempts to emulate his power. So the Antichrist in the book of Revelation is going to be against Christ and is going to try to come in the place of Christ. Uh, but, the, but John's point here, he says, is that the spirit of opposition to Christ is already present in those who oppose the truth about Christ. Uh, he writes in another place, Antichrist is used to characterize people who are radically opposed to the true doctrine about Christ and are thus supremely his opponents, even if they protest that they hold the truth about him and are Christians. The elder says that anybody who denies the truth is a very Antichrist, just as we might speak of a supremely evil person and refer to them as the very devil. So that's the idea behind this, is that it's a strong association with this idea, with these teachings, with being against Christ, that that spirit is already in the world, even though we haven't seen the quote-unquote Antichrist revealed to the world yet. And John says that the deceivers are many and that their message is destructive. So here's what we need to understand. If it was true in the first century, it's just as true, if not more so, now. After centuries have gone by, I can guarantee you that false teachers have not dwindled in their number, they have multiplied. And what's scary about today's world is that people have access, you know, back, you know, Several hundred years ago, you could have a false teacher and he might influence a group of people in one certain geographical location. But now what happens is you can have a false teacher 
that gains a gathering of hundreds of thousands worldwide because his message is accessible through the internet. And, and so uh, we need to be aware that if it was true then, it's true now. And we need to be, have, our, have our eyes open, have our ears open, paying attention to, 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 to realize that everybody who says that they are a Christian, every teacher who says they are a man of God or a woman of God, every person who claims to be a prophet of God, every person who says these things does not mean that that's, that that's the case. You have to look at what they say. You have to look and listen carefully for their true colors will be revealed in what they say and in the one they, they oppose. They are enemies of the truth about Jesus. And so we need to be aware of that just as much now as we did then. Let's look at verse eight. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So he, he starts off by saying, watch yourself. And that is, it doesn't come across very strongly in the English, but in the original Greek, that is what I'm just going to say the term and, and your eyes, eyes can glaze over for a second while I say it, but I'll explain it. It is a present tense imperative. Now, what that means is the phrase, the wording there, the, the, the grammar that he uses means to be continually on guard, to never stop watching, watching out, to never stop guarding your heart. Don't let your guard down ever is what he's saying. It's intended to come off as a very strong warning to the reader. And, and he implores his readers not to be lulled into a spiritual stupor. Why is that? Well, because their full reward is at stake. He said, but that you may not, uh, he said, watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Now, he says in the beginning, he says, watch out that you do not lose what we worked for. What is John referring to when he speaks of losing that which they have worked so hard to achieve? Well, let me just start by saying, uh, I feel confident in saying he's, this, is, this is not referring to losing one's salvation. Now, the other places where it talks about, about, uh, about the possibility of walking away from Christ, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. The reason is because of the language he says, do not lose what we have worked for. We do not work for our salvation. See, you, you can see that there. That salvation is, is, is a gift from God received by grace through faith. And so I don't think that's what he's referring to in, in that sense there. Most likely what he's referring to is the maturity uh, and the standing of this Christian community that they have been built up in, in the true faith and he, they've come so far in Christ they have found so much freedom already in Christ, and he does not want them to see them want to see them lose their progress in, 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 in how far they've come in Christ by falling under the spell of these deceivers. Uh, ra rather than lose what they worked for, John wants his re readers to be fully re re rewarded. And that, now, while that could refer to a heavenly treasure, it could be talking about we don't want you to lose the rewards in heaven that you'll have. Uh, but in the immediate context, most likely this is really referring to the reward is God himself because he says whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now, he says that anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Does not have God. Now, here's the thing. 
what is wrong with pushing ahead? I mean, shouldn't Christians want to grow and develop and mature? Shouldn't we want to surge forward? Well, here's the thing. Running ahead here is not talking about running ahead for maturity. Running ahead means that a person has left behind the teaching uh, 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 that, that should have been kept. It's, it's an image, the idea, the image behind the phrase here is of someone running headlong into trouble or someone going off the edge of a cliff. It, it evokes a picture of someone impatiently rushing forward. So, so this is not somebody who's saying, I'm going to press in and I want to grow and I want to make sure I grow, I'm growing in Jesus. This is somebody who's, who, who is saying, listen, I, this stuff is foolish. I'm going to rush ahead. I'm going to run to something different. That's really the idea. They're, they're running headlong into trouble. And, and the point at which the deceiver or the antichrist fail is not from an urgency to grow and to mature. That's not what's causing them to run ahead. It's from an urgency to leave behind the established understanding of who Jesus is. They want to run ahead and leave behind. They say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to believe, believe that Jesus actually came in the flesh because that goes against my philosophy, which believes that, that material is, uh, world is bad. And so I'm going to leave that behind. And they're, that's what they're leaving behind. That's what they're running ahead from is an, is an established understanding of who Jesus is. And the same is true today. We have to understand that if somebody says, well, I have a new revelation or whatever. Listen, anything that, that leaves behind what the Bible clearly teaches, you can, you can throw it out and mark it as false teaching. Uh, the, the deceiver surges forward in order to leave something behind. And what's left, what's left behind is not immaturity, but what's left behind is actually orthodox belief. So the, the, the truth is, we will never graduate from studying the revelation of God through His Son. Je Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, is the first and the last point of Christian theology, not to mention all the points in between. The incarnate Son of God is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It is all about Him. So real growth in Christian theology does not leave the truth of Jesus behind to, to go on to greater things because there is nothing greater, but genuine theological growth goes deeper into Jesus. This is much like Paul's message to the Colossians. You remember uh, he, he talked to them. They, they may have been tempted to leave behind the message that they first heard in order to find deeper spiritual fulfillment, but rather than being taken captive by hollow philosophy or human tradition, Paul exhorts the Colossians to continue to live in Christ. He tells them to be rooted and built up in Him. Uh, just as they first received Christ Jesus as Lord. In other words, the Jesus that they received is the one into whom they were to grow up. They were to go deeper into Jesus, not away from him. If they wanted to grow, it was about going deeper into this Jesus revealed in Scripture. And anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it offers what I call a Bible plus or a Jesus plus theology. Listen, anytime anybody says to get saved, you have to believe in Jesus plus this, they're off. 
that because now you're adding a work to believing in Jesus. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? So if somebody, I'll give you an example. And there will be some who may not agree with me on this, but that's okay. If somebody says, you have to believe in Jesus and be baptized to be saved. Okay, here's the problem. To be baptized is a work that I do. Now I have done something to earn my salvation. You see what I'm saying? Now, to be obedient, we, we need to be baptized. Because that's what scripture says to do. Uh, and so baptism is necessary for obedience. But the truth is, it's only through faith in Christ that we find salvation. And a simple example of this, as many of you will see, and many of you will think of, is the thief on the cross. He, what did Jesus say to him? He, when he said, which I'm always amazed at the thief on the cross, that they're hanging there. He sees Jesus dying on the cross and he says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, even though you're hanging on the cross, I still believe in you, Jesus. I believe you're going to come into a kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. He received salvation just by believing in Jesus. So, so when, you, when you have a Bible plus or a Jesus plus theology, that's, that's, that's somebody who's leaving the basic biblical truths about Jesus and claim to offer something new and something better. Chuck, were you raising your hand or? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> he had his Bible up and I thought, I thought, I'll just take that as an amen from now on. <laughs> amen. All right. Well, John, John's judgment on, on such persons is quick and it's to the point. He just frankly says they are lost. Because he says that person does not have God. And John is clear. There is no ambiguity. They have wandered beyond the teachings of Christ. And in the process, they have lost God himself. And, and it's ironic that these people who claim to have a deeper, more advanced knowledge of God, like these Gnostics or sometimes people today will, will claim the same thing. They have a deeper, more advanced knowledge. Oh, I've gone deeper. I know more. All these sort of things. But, they, but the, what's ironic is that they have actually lost the presence of God altogether, yet they don't even know it. That, that's a frightening, frightening thing. It reminds me of, of Samson. Um, you know, and Samson, you know, every time he, they, they, they tried to trick him and tried to get him to, to give the secret to his strength, you know, he told them, well, if you bind me with new ropes. Well, that didn't work. He got up and snapped the ropes and beat the tails off the, off the Philistines. Um, you know, he goes through this whole thing. And finally, when he finally told the, Delilah the truth and they cut her, his hair, the Bible says something that's one of the saddest scriptures in the Bible, I feel, because it says that Samson got up as before and shook himself as before, just like he did every other time when he got ready to take, out, take on the Philistines. The Bible says he, he, he got up and he shook himself as before, but he did not know the spirit of God had left him. See, that, that's a picture of backsliding is you get to the place where you're so far from God, you don't even know you, that God, that his presence has gone in your life. And frankly, by that time, you don't even care. So uh, all, all deceivers, I want to give you this. All deceivers and false teachers practice a very similar, I read this today, I thought it was a very uh, uh, unique way to say it, but they practice a very similar 
spiritual mathematical strategy. Here's how you can, you can measure up false teaching. They, 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 they use addition. They add an extra biblical source of authority by prophet, pen, or professor. They say, well, we're going to add some authority to Jesus or to the word here. They use subtraction. They subtract from the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They deny his deity they, and, or they find inadequate the work of redemption. They use division. They divide our allegiance from God through Christ alone to others. And then finally, they use multiplication. They multiply the requirements for salvation. They all, all advocate some form of work salvation. You can look at, at all, all cults, all false religions. What you'll find is all of them in one way or another are about man doing something to make himself acceptable to God, to earn his salvation. It's always works-based. I have to do these things and then I'll have a place in heaven. It's very different with Christianity, isn't it? Because with Christianity, you will not find anywhere in the Bible where it says, you must do these things and you'll have a place in heaven. What you find in the Bible, it says, Christ has done this for you. Therefore, if you believe in him, you'll have a place in heaven. It's about what he has done, not what we do. All right, let's go on to verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So rather than just leaving his instruction abstract, John directs his, leaders, his readers in a very practical way what to do if and when a deceiver comes across their path. And, and John commanded his readers to not receive a false teacher into their house. Now, I want to say this. When you talk about that, the, the, the word house there is, is, is oikia, which, which likely means a personal dwelling. Though there are some commentators, you may have heard this, that they, they take it to mean a house in which the church would meet because the, the churches met in houses. They met in house churches. Uh, however, house church meetings in the New Testament uh, the, it always uses a different word. It uses oikos, not oikia. So this is more likely it's talking about not receiving them into your home personally. So most likely John is prohibiting the extension of private hospitality to false teachers. Uh, in other words, we're not going to give them a base of operation from our home, nor are we going to welcome them, them as friends or, and fellow laborers for the truth of, of the gospel. And he says to do so, is to share in their evil work. Now, to us, that seems overly harsh to modern ears, but it makes perfect sense in the ancient world uh, because we don't understand, in the Western world, we don't understand hospitality in the same way that, the, that they did in the ancient world and still even today in the, in the Eastern world. Hospitality was a, the means of which an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. Uh, and to offer hospitality to false teachers would establish a relationship of acknowledgement and acceptance. And such a relationship is formed not merely with the person, but with what they represent. So if I offer hospitality in their culture, if I, I let somebody stay in my home, what I'm doing is I am putting, in a sense, I'm putting my stamp of approval, not just on them as a person, but on what they stand for and what they believe. So John is saying, listen, you can't do that. 
You can't give your stamp of approval to somebody who's a false teacher, even if they say that they're a brother or a sister in Christ. Uh, Hospitality, in other words, in those days, would approximate endorsement. Additionally, on top of that, think of this. In the ancient world, rented a combination. You know, now we've got hotels, we've got all these, you know, bed and breakfast, whatever. But it was rented accommodations were, were often unreliable and, and even precarious at times. And, and, and that meant that most people uh, would rely on the hospitality of others when they travel. So if they're going to another city, they don't book a hotel somewhere. They're relying on somebody in that city that they have something in, contact, in, in, in common with to be able to open up their home and allow them to stay there. That's how they lived. That's how they traveled. And, and indeed, early Christians often hosted traveling missionaries who spread the gospel. This is what happened. Paul did this all the time. You can read through the book of Acts. You can see where he'd be staying in such and such home, in the home of so-and-so, whatever. That's what was taking place. And this is the situation that's envisioned here. Uh, John imagines, or he, he, he knows, and it's probably not an imagination, I'm sure this has happened, was happening at the time, but he could see uh, uh, the situation where teachers who would come in and they would claim to be Christian, even though they're teaching a different gospel, and then they would ask for lodging with genuine believers. And John's instruction to, to refuse this need, what, what that means is that these visiting false teachers, because of the difficulty in trying to find other accommodations, they would, be, uh, th- th- they would not be able to remain in that location. They would be forced to move on, go some- to another city, go to another place. And, and not only that, by not receiving them, these false teachers would be, in a sense, unendorsed by the genuine believers who refused to welcome them. And in this way, we can see why John would say that greeting such visitors would, would uh, approximate sharing in their wicked work and it would give them the opportunity of endorse, endorsement to conduct their ministry. But on the other hand, the refusal of hospitality would hinder their ability to cause damage among genuine believers. Thus, while it seemingly unlovingly to us, John's instruction is actually given out of his love and pastoral concern for the believers because he wanted to protect them from the wolves of the false teachers. So so the take-home message is that we must not be complicit in the ministry of a false gospel. We need to be very careful to always be on our guard against even accidental endorsement of a message that can actually do people harm. How can that be? Well, maybe you're a member. I mean, you've got to pay attention. Maybe if you look at something, you might find out that you're, you're a, a, a group member on Facebook for some group or some teaching that is, that is anti-Christ. Well, I don't want to give my endorsement by being a part of that group. So, so that's just a s- simple example of something like that. But we need to c- continue in the teaching of Christ ourselves so that we might be equipped to spot danger when it approaches and to know when to walk away. we got to know the word. I've said this so many times. If we don't know the word, we're much more susceptible to false teachings. We've got to know the word. Because even if you don't, you know, listen, you, you, don't, you say you don't have it all memorized, but if you know the word enough, when somebody says something that is off, if you're in the Word and you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, there's something in, there's a light that 
starts blinking. That red light starts going off and says, something's not right here. You better check this out. Don't just swallow this. That's what we do. Now, I want to add to that uh, something, because sometimes people use this verse and apply it, I believe, inappropriately. And so I want to talk about what John is not saying. John is not saying that we cannot allow these people in our home for a visit whereby we share the gospel of Jesus with them. I've heard people use this verse to justify and say, hey, well, you know, when a cult member comes to my door, scripture says I'm not to welcome them. I'm not getting, letting them in the house. I don't care. And they just, and they, and they push them away. But I believe maybe we ought to be doing that. We ought to be having them into our home and you, you can hear that and you say, well, I can't, I'm not equipped. I don't know how to defend my faith. And that's a very common fear. But, but there's a simple and sure strategy that anyone can use who, who truly knows the Lord Jesus as, as Lord and Savior and as they witness to someone in, uh, involved in false teaching. First, there are four principles that you need to remember when you're dealing with somebody who's caught up in false teaching. Number one, Always be kind. Don't don't attack them. Don't treat them lesser than. Be kind to them. Second, be a good listener. In other words, don't be just always thinking about how you're going to answer. Hear what they're saying. Because until you hear what they're saying, you won't know how to answer. Third, pray for them. The whole time, pray. And then fourth, love them. Love. Love is what's going to knock down a lot of walls. Now, these will all guide you as you share the truth in love. But there's also a general procedure that I want to offer to you that maybe you can consider should, uh, you know, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness come to your door. Here's a general procedure you might be able to follow. First of all, give them 15 minutes uninterrupted in which they can tell you what they believe you must do to be saved and go to heaven when you die. Then... Ask them to give you 15 minutes uninterrupted so that you can tell them what, how you believe a person can be saved and go to heaven when they die. Then after you've done that, and, and it's simple, you know, to say, listen, I'll, I'll give you 15 minutes and then, I'll, and then I'd like you to give me 15 minutes. I won't interrupt you and then you don't, don't interrupt me. Then after you've done that, pray with them. And when you pray, pray evangelistically. Share the gospel clearly and completely in the prayer that you pray. Then when that's all done, as they're getting ready to leave, invite them and their friends to come back and do it again. See, it's not about you trying to say, well, let me, let me just attack all these. It's not, you know, there's nothing wrong. It's great to have apologetics and learn apologetics and learn how to answer specific things. But, but all you have to know, you just got to know what scripture says about how to get saved and be able to show it to them and tell them. And you know, most of the time when they realize they're not getting anywhere with you, they'll either keep coming back because they're hungry for the gospel that you're telling them, or they'll stop coming because they realize that you're, you're a hard case. And you know, I, when we lived in Twin Falls, there were a lot of Mormons there and they stopped coming to my door uh, because they just realized I was introducing more questions to the people that came to the door and they were questioning things. And so they just stopped coming. They stopped sending them to my door. Uh, so that may happen. So, all right, let's, let's close out with this. Uh, 
John, Second uh, John twelve thirteen. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who has chosen my God send their greetings. So John has shared his heart, but he says there's so much more than he wants to say. And paper and pen have, have been sufficient for the immediate situation, but they are a poor substitute for a face-to-face meeting. So in closing, John, he reminds us uh, of, of two precious truths that, that, that uh, are never, should never be taken for granted. First, when believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ and love each other come together, there is indeed a fullness of joy that words on paper cannot express. There's something about that moment. John loves this people. They love him. They're, they're coming in reunion with something that they all looked forward to, and it could not happen soon enough. And there's something we have to remember. There's something about the people of God coming together that, it, that brings fullness of joy. It's a powerful thing that we sometimes in the West take for granted. I think, I think a, a modern application of this knowledge might be live streamed services. Now listen, I, I, love, I love the fact that we live stream our church. We're live streaming this tonight. Uh, and live stream are wonderful for people who cannot make it to church in person. Maybe they're disabled, they're homebound. Maybe there's something else happened. Maybe they're just sick, whatever, but they can't make it to church. It's great to have that. They're also wonderful for the lost person who just quote unquote happens to tune in and then they hear the gospel and the Lord uses that moment to, to reach them. Or, and they're wonderful when a person is out of town, but they still want to participate in what God's doing in their home church. But here's the thing, that live stream is never intended, it's not intended, and it cannot ever be a substitute for attending church. It just can't be. There's something about being together with the body of Christ, with the family of God, our brothers and sisters whom we love in the Lord. I, I heard someone uh, illustrate it like this, and I thought it was so good. I've just held on to it. I've said, shared this with a number of people. And that It is this. Watching church on, on a television or a computer or a phone is like watching a fireplace video. How many of you have seen those? They, they, people like them at Christmas. They'll have a, like the stream. They'll have a fireplace with the fire burning. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those? Well, here's the thing about that. You can see the flames, but you can never feel the heat. You can see the flames, but you don't feel the warmth. When you watch a live stream, you can see what God's doing but you'll never feel the warmth of the body of Christ. See, there, there's, there's value in being with the people of God. And, and listen, if you're somebody who's, who's uh, homebound, can't get to church, maybe your work hours are off and it's different, whatever the reason, I'm not talking to people who can't come. I'm talking to people who can, but choose instead to say, well, I'm gonna substitute going to church by watching the live stream because then I can be comfortable in my pajamas. Well, you may be comfortable, but you're missing out on an, an incredibly important aspect of being part of the body of Christ. It's very important. Uh, and and that, that fullness of joy cannot be fully expressed and cannot be duplicated any other way. 
And it can only be found by gathering with the people of God. So that's important. That's the one thing. Second thing is the letter closes with a greeting either from the elect lady sister, but I believe, as I said last week, more probably a sister church. And they says that they stand with John in what he has said. And indeed, the truth is, uh, John, the truth about Jesus brings together brothers and sisters from every tribe, language, people, and nation. They were, they were together with him. We are one big family with the same Father, Savior, and Spirit. And, and, and nothing should tear down the walls of sinful bigotry and, and prejudice like the gospel of Jesus. Because in Christ, there is no male nor female. There is no slave nor free man. There is no black or white. We can go down the list and we can put anything in there. There is no Jew or Gentile. They're just brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so love and truth flow freely from him to all of us. Therefore, love and truth should flow freely from all of us to one another. And the, there's a power there of, of the truth that brings us together. Daniel Aiken wrote the following, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this uh, in tonight's study with this. He wrote this. He said, I was on an airplane some years ago when I looked over and saw a woman reading The Varieties of Religious Experience, A Study in Human Nature, written back in 1902 by William James, and the American psychologist and philosopher. He writes, being prompted, I believe, of the Lord, I sought to engage her in conversation, and so I commented on the book, pointing out that there were things in, in it with which I agreed, but there were things in it with which I strongly disagreed. She very graciously responded that she had never read anything or met anyone with whom she completely agreed. And I responded and told her I had met only one. She asked who? I told her his name is Jesus. From there, we engaged in a calm but intense dialogue for almost an hour. And as the conversation moved toward closure, I told her that the bottom line, the, the crucial issue of history is Jesus and his resurrection. If the resurrection is true, it does follow logically and quite clearly that one, there is a God. Two, Jesus is that God. Three, all of humanity needs to know this God. And four, this Jesus and the message about him is the focal point of all history, all knowledge, and all life. You know, former talk, television talk show host Larry King, anybody old enough you remember Larry King? Yeah. He was once asked, who he would like to interview from history. And one of the persons he named that he would like to interview was Jesus. And when questioned as to what he would ask Jesus, Larry King said, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history. You know what? I believe those, both these men are right. When the virgin birth, the fact that he became a human, a real human being, is wedded to his resurrection, then Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal son of God, absolutely does define history. And he does absolutely define eternity. We must love this truth. We must live this truth. After all, it is Jesus who said, you will know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. Let's pray. Father.
We do thank you for your word. We thank you that we know the truth and it has set us free. Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, and we celebrate you. We live for you. We worship you. And God, I pray you'd help us to, uh, to live this message out, to live this truth out in such a way that other people will see Jesus. That God, everything we say, everything we do will point to you and that Jesus would be glorified in our lives. And Lord, when we come in contact with that person who's involved in false teaching, God, I pray you'd help us not to get angry, not to, to be judgmental, but simply to love them, to pray for them and tell them the truth in love. And God, I pray that as we do, that your spirit would soften their hearts, that you'd open doors, that you would help them to see the reality of who Jesus is. And in finding that reality, God, that, would, that they would find true freedom in Christ and forgiveness of their sins. Lord, we thank you for all of this. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.